my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's blood. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Barry James Dyke, and I'm here with uh, my sidekick, um, uh, Will Pierce and handsome Phil Kleiger, and we have a wonderful guest today. We're going to have um, uh, uh, William Danko or Bill Danko, who wrote the book the, the Millionaire Next Door, which has sold I don't know four million copies in I don't know how many forty countries or something like that. And just so we're going to have him on around twenty past the hour, and uh, we're going to talk about his latest book called Richer Than a Millionaire, and uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy, and uh, uh, we're very, very grateful that he's. Um, Going to be our guest today, yeah. But anyhow, so so Bill, thank you so much for being our guest today. And uh, I've known a lot about you, for, uh, and actually, I actually knew Tom Stanley years ago, uh, uh, and uh, we used to have conversations. But um, uh, and and you've uh, authored the book with uh, with Tom Stanley, the uh, the the Millionaire Next Door, which I don't know sold four million copies. But could you just please tell our audience about your background, how you wrote the book? And then we're of course we're going to talk about your next book. Um, but could you please give us your background? Uh, absolutely. Um, really started in 1973. I was a student in one of Tom Stanley's uh, marketing classes, and um, we had a good relationship, and I assisted him with his very first study of the affluent market that same year. And over the years, we probably did 10 or 12 uh, consulting-type projects and a few academic-type papers. And then around 1993, I think it was, I had since earned my Ph.D., and he since went on to go teach at the uh, Georgia State University. Mm -hmm. He called me up and asked me if I still had the old data from the various projects, and I did. And he says, well, look, here's a concept about wealth in America. He says, let's reanalyze these uh, disparate data sets, uh, uh, Bill, namely you. <laughs> let's reanalyze these uh, data sets. And we came up with uh, an overall questionnaire um, based on our prior research. And then we did some more focus groups and some more personal interviews and re-examined some census data and IRS data. My, my point is, it took 20 years of background to create The uh, Millionaire Next Door, which came out in 1996. So it's amazing, you know, going on 21 years and 4 million copies later, it's, uh, uh, it's paid a lot of bills and it's changed a lot of lives, that's for sure. <laughs> that, that, that's, but the amazing thing about your book, uh, Book bill, and this I, I love your uh, research. By the way, you actually did a lot of you know. It's a lot of hard data. It's not just like uh, feelings, or whatever. But it's, you and Tom put together a lot of hard data about what makes people wealthy. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, one of my attorney friends um, who would sometimes be on the same speaking platform as I said, you know, Bill, what I like about the Millionaire Next Door 
is that it's not just based on opinion, but it does have a lot of uh, substance to it. And, uh, well, that's part of the academic training, right? You yeah. know, it's, it's called uh, convergent validity. When you have uh, disparate data sources all converging on some basic truths that are related uh, in the book, um, it really explains why it you know, has such good longevity. A lot of it, you know, it's kind of confirms. I don't know. It kind of confirms uh, common sense, um, but we'll get into that in a bit, uh, uh, Bill. But um, but one of the greatest truths in all your work um, is that, uh, and which is you, it's backed up with facts. Okay, which I love facts. Is that real wealth is 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 not really created as it seems. So in other words, is that the real wealthy folks in America are really not really showy with it, are they? I mean, people, you know, they don't drive the BMWs and all that crap. Am I correct? Um, no, that is absolutely true. You know, it's uh, keeping the low profile makes a lot of sense. In fact, one of the terms that um, we, we've used is called the industrial strength neighborhood, <laughs> <laughs> where people who may have a blue-collar job, being a tradesman or a tradeswoman for that matter, or working on a farm in some specialty area, um, you know, can create a lot of wealth, but don't have all the artifacts of wealth, like belonging to a country club or having a high-end uh, automobile. Uh, they don't need it. They don't have to impress anybody. And so this uh, kind of, you know, hidden wealth is, is, is really important. In fact, in one of our early um, studies, going back to the uh, 1970s, where we came up with this idea of... Uh, the blue-collar millionaire, or, or saying, you know, wait a minute, the Hollywood portrayal has been so different from what we're finding in our surveys. We are finding that there are some people in, again, these industrial strength neighborhoods that had a great net worth, but didn't have a lot of the uh, artifacts of wealth, like a large house and a large car. And yet there are others who lived in the so-called right zip code areas who had all the trappings of wealth, and we found out they had a wall-to-wall -wall mortgage and a lot of leverage, and they really didn't have any net worth. So yeah, that's, when that's... we got that revelation, that it furthered us to look at you know the uh, you know the anatomy of wealth as more than just the so-called um, you know. Uh, professional, such as the physicians and attorneys, many of whom can make a lot of money, but of course there are also the tradespeople who also can make a lot and not spend a lot. And of course, that's the other part of the equation: <laughs> not spending. Yeah. Now, one of the, also one of the things which kind of another common message that comes through to your work um, is that um, a lot of the the, the things. Uh, uh, that makes people successful from a wealth perspective and have a monetary perspective is a lot of it's kind of the uh, kind of a corny but you know time-tested uh, techniques uh, essentially perseverance you know discipline thrift self-control is that correct I mean it, 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 you know because everyone thinks you get in a dot-com or an IPO they're gonna make all this money yeah. but but the um well, in fact, and this is confirmatory, uh, yesterday, I think it was, the new Forbes 400 list came out, and part of the TV analysis was, and look at this, two-thirds of the people on this list are the so-called self-made millionaires. They did not have the benefit of inheritance. 
Well, that seems to be the same statistic that we find with ordinary millionaires. <laughs> they earned it. Yeah. Very few have actually inherited it. Oh, so, oh. yeah, the, the perseverance and, um, you know, the frugality are certainly the cornerstones that never go out of style. In fact, you know, it, 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 I go back to, as I said, 1973 is when my timeline began. But if you look at the work of Benjamin Franklin yep. from the 1700s, my goodness, you know, some things never go out of style. He talks about frugality and always postponing um, your, uh, your gratification. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom if we just look at some of the historical record as to how you ought to behave to build wealth. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that, Will. Uh, I mean, um, uh, Bill, but um, the... You know, I've always told people you got to save before you invest. But the way the I call it the uh, the asset management industrial complex, they just want everyone to put money into the market and gamble with it. And um, uh, and your your research shows that people they're actually great savers. Um, but you've come up with a with a new book, uh, Bill, with uh, uh, Richard Vanessa uh, called "Richard Than a Millionaire: A Pathway to True Prosperity." What made you in um, and Rich uh, decided to write this book? Yeah. Um, you know, Rich Van Ness and I have been colleagues for about 30 years. And when we would have various uh, social opportunities and going to lunch and having discussions, we would talk about what kind of lessons do we want to give our own children and indeed our own grandchildren. I have five grandchildren of my own. <laughs> and, uh, you always wonder what the next generation and generations yet unborn, what kind of message are they getting in today's press, and uh, what are they reading, and what are, the, <laughs> what are the values that are being transmitted? And so we said, you know, well, let's update the material in The Millionaire Next Door. Because, again, for the listeners who don't know, it was about three years ago, um, Tom Stanley unfortunately died, uh, in a car accident, and, um, you know, so anyway, Rich Van Ness, uh, a, a longtime uh, colleague and friend, when we had these discussions about values, we said, well, let's take some elements of the psychology literature that relate to happiness and life satisfaction and integrate it with the uh, the net worth idea. And so we designed a survey that had near millionaires in the sense of those with at least $100,000 net worth to a million and those who were millionaires with over a million dollar net worth. And we looked at life satisfaction in both groups. And we got some uh, pretty good uh, revelations, which, of course, I can elaborate on. But that was the motivation. And also, um, one other motivation, too, that I couldn't ignore. Um, when I was getting my Ph.D. at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, uh, my dissertation advisor, Jim McLaughlin, who was obviously very uh, influential in how I uh, would proceed in my education, would come up with uh, seemingly out-of-place anecdotes during office hours about how he found God at Berkeley, where he got his Ph.D. 
and how he determined that pride is a deadly sin after visiting his, uh, going to his high, um, his uh, MBA reunion yep. at uh, Harvard. <laughs> so the God factor really came into play, not only from my educational perspective, but also from my own upbringing as well. So when we take the psychology, the God factor, the net worth idea, that's what makes our book different in this Richer Than a Millionaire. That's the contribution we're making. You, you know, uh, Bill, it's so important for you to bring that up because um, uh, I've, I'm, in my own practice, I've dealt with a lot of wealthy people over the years, and uh, I've found that most people, uh, and, uh, the, you know, God's really uh, pretty central to the life. You know, I don't care whether they're a, uh, a Protestant or a Catholic, a Jew or Muslim or whatever, they have some uh, belief in a higher power, and um, what, did, what does your research say on that? Are they happier? Are these folks who believe in God happier than, than the folks who don't? I mean, what, what's your take? Well, yeah, you know, just like um, it's um, some data from the Gallup organization and the Pew organization come up with a statistic that about 90% of all the people they survey claim to belong to some organized religion. And I think over the years that's been slipping a little, but it's in the high 80s uh, right now. But just because you belong doesn't mean you're going to be happy. <laughs> you know, um, certainly in theology, there's a, a term in Greek called uh, metanoia. What's that, What's that one? M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. Metanoia, which means a true conversion of the heart. Oh, okay. And so when we asked people on our questionnaire, we certainly didn't use the word metanoia, <laughs> but we asked the question, are you at peace with your soul? And that really cuts to the heart of it. And we found that those who are at peace are twice as likely to fall into the satisfied category in terms of uh, psychological satisfaction as opposed to those who are still struggling. And they're just not at peace. They're anxious. They don't know where they're going. They're on a treadmill. And in fact, that's what we do in our book. We have all these anecdotes of personal interviews as well as our survey research that really cuts to the heart of the issue. Just because you have money doesn't mean you're going to be happy. Now, fortunately, 90% of the people who are millionaires do fall into the satisfied category. But it's telling that one out of 10 fall into the dissatisfied category. And they have characteristics that are, well, um, quite different from those who are satisfied. And of course, we can, we, we delve in those, to those into the book. Um, and of course, I'll talk about that as well. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you. One of the uh, the things that comes true is that, uh, uh, and actually, uh, Will Pierce, my sidekick here, and and I said, well, obviously, uh, you and Tom Stanley did pretty well, you know, selling four million books, and uh, which, hey, I'm all for. It. I'm a capitalist at heart. But one of the blessings I think um, of this is that you're able to bless others. Well, I don't know. It says somewhere in Scripture, you bless God, bless you, so you can bless others. But one of the things uh, which you and your wife Connie did. Um, with this, with this windfall, if you will, you really helped, you took care of your brother Anthony. And could you tell 
our audience uh, about the situation with your brother? Because oh. th- you know, that... um, yeah, no, certainly uh, I will. Um, you know, my brother Tony, who's was well, he died uh, three years ago, also. Um, but he was a quadriplegic for over forty years, and for the past twenty years of his life, my wife Connie and I were able to uh, keep him out of a nursing home in a private house and, you know, deal with it. We were were the primary caregivers, and um, I I wouldn't trade that for anything. But, boy, (laughs) in fact, I'm in my home office right now, and I have a picture of myself and my brother Tony, and I'm serving him a martini. (laughs) And I'm looking at him. I said, God, he doesn't have any gray hair. (laughs) You've seen my picture. I'm a gray-haired guy, and he's older than I (laughs) am. But my, 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 point, my point is, he got good care. We helped him age in dignity, or with dignity. And, uh, and of course, the inevitable happens to all of us. And um, so, well, God bless his soul. That's all I can say. Um, but, yeah, but it really, look, we got to put words into action. And one of the things, personally, I mean, I don't, want to publicize it in the sense of um, I'm not boastful, but my wife and I have also created three scholarship funds, uh, two at um, Teal College in western Pennsylvania and one at my university where I spent my career for 30-something years at SUNY Albany. Yep. Um, you know, creating scholarship funds, giving of your time, um, really does create greater life satisfaction. I know that from my personal perspective, but I also know it from the research. You know, when you have um, over a thousand respondents, as we have in our survey that we rely on in our um, new book, Richer Than a Millionaire, we find that uh, those who are more charitable, and not only in terms of uh, money, but also in terms of volunteering their time, Um, and generally practice the golden rule of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, those those people consistently fall into the well-satisfied category as opposed to those who, well, don't give time or money, are narcissistic, narcissistic about themselves, buying more, consuming more. Well, they're probably not going to be millionaires with that attitude anyway. <laughs> but um, they're on a treadmill that seems to be going nowhere. That's the dissatisfied group. All right, uh, Bill. So in any event, so my sidekick, Will Pierce, is kind of my alter ego. He has a he has a question for you. Okay, sir? Sure. sure. Well, you wrote your first uh, New York Times bestseller in 96, uh, and um, uh, The Millionaire Next Door. Now, now here we are in uh, 2018. What does it take? How much money does it take to be a millionaire? Well, I mean, certainly a million dollars of net worth gets you to the millionaire status. But um, you know, it all depends how you define net worth. In fact, one of the uh, the tables in the in the book. Let me see if I can find it offhand. Um, it's, um, it, it depends on, on how you count the money. You know, if you count your cars and your furniture, that's one way of doing it, including all assets. Uh, but if you just look at um, 
actual liquid assets. Um, it's really quite small, and it's anywhere from 3% of the population to maybe as much as 11% of the population. And, and, and if you consider the population as 125 million households is, uh, is how we would define millionaire. But um, yeah, you got to look at productive assets. There's a lot of, uh, you know, just because you have a large house, you also ha also have a, uh, you know, probably large property uh, taxes to go with it. <laughs> so, you know, that's, um, so to answer the question, it all depends how you defined what a millionaire is. But it's essentially someone who can say, I can do what I want to do on my own terms. In fact, that's one of the things that, you know, people have uh, asked me about over the years. Well, what's the sense of having all this money if you're just going to be frugal and live in a crummy house and, and, and drive a, an, a used car? <laughs> and then when I explain to them the beauty of having wealth is that you can do things on your own terms. You could buy a new house. You could buy a new car. You could do a lot of things if you wanted to. But you put it in context and say, I don't have to. And I don't want to call attention to myself, and I can therefore live very comfortably without all these outward manifestations. So it's not a and, and again, one of the things that makes you richer is when you say, "I'm not attached to all these worldly possessions." Yeah, yeah. Um, I I have a, another question because people want to listen to you, uh, Bill. But one of the things which is also, I think you, you found to be a common thread is that I find even doing what I do um, is that a common thread, one of the true gifts anyone can have uh, in becoming the, uh, richer than a millionaire or the millionaire next door is to have a real uh, sense of passion, um, which is known as enthusiasm. And I guess enthusiasm is known with God, God within. But um, um, is, isn't passion one of the greatest assets anyone can have in any field of endeavor? Is that correct? Or? Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. You know, um, when you look at Benjamin Franklin's advice from his Way to, Health, uh, Way to Wealth essay from 1758, um, the very first, uh, you know, two concepts he uh, talks about or writes about is that you have to be industrious and, um, you know, have, have, a, have a trade where you can, you know, put your heart and soul into and the second point he makes in that essay is you've got to persevere. In fact, in that essay, again, from 250 years ago, he uses the phrase, there is no gain without pain. I mean, everybody thinks Nike came up with that. <laughs> but it was, it's actually in that, that historic essay. So this idea of being industrious and persevering and having this passion and having this focus is really critical for wealth formation. You know, when you look at, even at a university, the, the question is, what do you have to do to get tenure? You have to be focused in some research area. If you're a generalist, you're probably not going to make it. And you look at the physicians who tend to be very wealthy. They tend to be those in the specialties. The same thing with attorneys as opposed to those in general practice. Focus, perseverance, being an expert in a field is, is really critical for wealth building. Yeah. Plumbing. Yeah. Matter. A finished carpenter. <laughs> there, there's all sorts of things. 
not just a general carpenter, but a Finnish carpenter. Now, now one of the things too, you know, we're you're in you're in Albany, New York, that area, but we're here in New England, of course. Um, <laughs> so we have a lot of these Ivy League schools, and I, we hear about education, education, education. You know, Harvard, you know, blah blah blah. You know, and it's just, um, but. Yeah, education is important. And Bill, you've got your PhD, and uh, and Rich has one, and Tom Stanley had one. Um, but having a, a brand name um, education is not really an indicator of uh, uh, that someone's going to be successful. Does it really? I mean, it's important. Don't don't get me wrong, but I mean, people can be successful from anywhere. Am I correct? You are absolutely correct. Now, look, having a brand-name education from an Ivy League school opens a lot of doors. You bet. But then the, I remember uh, reading uh, about a, a chairman of a bank saying, okay, you get into the door with your Ivy League education. That's the first step. After the first week, we ask you, now what is it you actually know how to do? <laughs> <laughs> so the skill and the focus and the passion are relevant across all spectrums. So you just can't rest on your laurels of saying, hey, I have this particular elite education. Um, now, recently, uh, yesterday or the day before in the Wall Street Journal, there was something that was so apropos to what we have in uh, Richer Than a Millionaire. Uh, it was about this woman who wanted to be a diesel mechanic or a car mechanic and everybody's saying, well, you got to go to college. You know, her parents want her to go to college. But she has, well, some hands-on skills that she can develop, and she's probably going to have greater job satisfaction by doing what she knows how to do rather than being forced uh, to do something. Now, I know Rich and I have found the same phenomena. You know, I, I don't know how many students he has actually taught over the years, but in my career, I know it's been more than 10,000 and a lot of that was in lecture centers in my earlier years. And um, quite frankly, even though it was a state school, there's a, a large segment of that student population that I call just being in there in a holding tank because their parents told them they have to be there and they don't have any particular motivation to want to do anything other than graduate and then maybe get a job doing something. Uh, and that's tragic. It's, it's truly tragic. Um, <laughs> it, that passion really has to, uh, to, to come through. I mean, when I look at the microcosm of my own children, my wife's an occupational therapist. Of course, I was a marketing professor. <laughs> my three kids, now my daughter, the oldest, well, she got her Ph.D., and she's a professor at a college. My another son got his PhD in mechanical engineering, and he's an engineer with uh, General Electric uh, in their uh, research lab. And my third son, or my third child, my, my, my youngest, he has a degree in computer systems engineering, and he works in the aerospace industry. None of them are in medicine. None of them uh, went into marketing. They're all doing um, what they want. And I applaud that. They're making their own way. And what I really like is they're emancipated and they don't ask me for money. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best blessing of all. 
<laughs> I'm not cheap with them, but they don't ask for it either. They're uh, they're they're good. They're very good. I love them dearly. Uh, speaking of which, um, which leads me to the um, subject of inherited wealth, and um, I don't know how anyone affords these uh, these Ivy League schools today. I mean, so I have a client of mine. Uh, they're, they're sending one of their kids to Columbia, and another one to Harvard, and it's just like seventy grand a year. It's like holy moly. Um, but one of the things which you find with millionaires, and I, I th- this is still pretty true, is that most people in America are still self-made. Is that correct, uh, Bill? No, that that is still true. Um, again, we find in our the, the current research in richer than a millionaire, the pathway to true prosperity, it's um, it's at two thirds inherited nothing. And again, as I, I think I mentioned uh, earlier, listening to the commentary about the new Forbes 400 list, you know, one of the reporters said, "Wow!" And two thirds inherited nothing. <laughs> but you know what? They also used the term in that same reporting: "They're self-made men, self-made women." Yeah. I always hated that term, "self-made." You know. There's some luck in there, but there's also the grace of God in there that can't be denied. It's uh, you didn't do it all on your own. <laughs> no one, okay. yeah, no Not one got off on that tangent. But that word "self-made" is uh, is something that I think is overused, and uh, you think it's under your own power you're able to do such things. Yes, yeah, yeah. I see that because I get the, get all the Forbes and they see "self-made," and I'm like, uh-uh. You know, a lot of it's done with bank leverage and so forth, and. Um, uh, and, I, and no one does it on their own, uh, and I, I would, I'm 300% in agreement with you. Um, but one of the questions I have, you you know, you're marketing, but also an economist by trade, uh, Bill, if you will. But what is your take on America? We've become a, essentially an empire of debt. Uh, uh, Addison Wigan and Bill Bonner wrote a wonderful book called Empire of Debt. And the thing is today, Bill, and what's your take on this is that and I think the Commerce Department just came out with a uh, uh, report uh, about a month ago that the U.S. The, as, as a whole, the people only save about set aside about three percent of their 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 pay into savings, whereas the the Irish, the Germans, the French, the Germans, even the Italians, kind of kick our butt in uh, in saving. Um, isn't that a real yeah, problem? It, it, in this America? I mean, if you're not a saver, you can't be an investor. <laughs> And, and if you're not an investor, how are you going to let the time value of money work for you? Um, yeah, there are a lot, you know, I remember talking to one of my colleagues at the university, and she told me she can't afford to save for <laughs> retirement. And I, I looked at her, I said, you can't afford not to save. <laughs> you know, everybody has this creeping lifestyle. What you have to do is, you know, determine that a modest house is okay. A depreciated car is okay. You're not going to worry about those dings on the parking lot. And why not be a systematic saver? You know, I was at a seminar where one of the speakers dealt with um, athletes making millions a year. And he says, the basic advice I tell my athletes is think of your income in terms of thirds, you can spend a third of it. You better set aside a third for taxes and administrative costs, and you better take a third of that 
and have long-term investments in a diversified portfolio. It doesn't get any more simple than that, does it? No, no it, it, it doesn't. And, you know, so I think um, – but the debt, the debt is a real problem. I think uh, uh, in this country, I'm convinced of it. I mean, what is student loan debt was 1.4 trillion. Credit card debt's over a trillion. Uh, uh, credit card debt, uh, Mastercard, Visa, all this stuff. It's incredible. But um, um, why isn't I don't know? From an, I've never been an academic bill, but is anyone in academia? Uh, addressing this problem of not saving? Um, I, I, uh, there are some, yes, I have seen some academic papers on that. But it, the problem with academic papers is they're read by 12 graduate students. <laughs> what we need is to get this into the front pages of the popular press and somehow, you know, make it part of the understanding of if you expect to be able to retire with some sort of comfort or, you know, have, you know, age with some sort of dignity, you better be a saver. Um, everybody wants this immediate gratification. And, of course, we rail against that in Richer Than a Millionaire. It's about the long term. In fact, again, going back to our friend Ben Franklin, he quotes Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. The borrower is a slave to the lender. Amen. It doesn't get any more straightforward than that. People, you know, we talk about serfdom, right? Yeah. The highway to serfdom, yeah. Pirates of Manhattan. Yeah, I have that book. <laughs> <laughs> Barry? Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, you're absolutely correct in your thesis here. You know, we, we, we are a, debt, a debtor nation, not only in terms of our sovereign debt, but also in personal debt. And again, when I look at these students at the university who are acquiring and accruing this kind of uh, student debt without any passion and therefore being saddled with the debt and not having a job that's going to be able to uh, reasonably get them out without some sort of government bailout, um, it, it, it's not good for them personally and it's not good for our nation, that's for sure. Look, when I, when I look at the millionaires, those who have achieved, one of the questions we had in our survey, whether they agreed or disagreed with America is the land of financial opportunity, the vast majority of the millionaires said absolutely it is. And when we look at some World Bank data as to what do immigrants look for in a land of opportunity, they look for things like rule of law and educational opportunities and a way to, to actually build something um, where they're free. And historically, that's been the case for the United States of America, and I certainly hope and pray that we can maintain that level of entrepreneurism and uh, this idea of we are the land of freedom that will allow those who understand to actually build wealth and be positive contributors. You know, I yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Bill. But I, I I I it's still. I mean, I take shots at American American finance as much as anybody. But uh, I still believe, you know, uh, this is one of the best places to be. Uh, are you still there, Bill? I am. Okay. Yep. All right. But but um, but I still believe that uh, more than ever. Um, but the uh, 
the uh, maybe that's your the battery on your phone kind of going. Uh, uh, but um, the um, uh, until we address the the, the debt problem, it's, it's gonna it's gonna be. Uh, it's it's going to be because it, people don't save. I mean, um, they just don't. Um, do you have any uh, 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 questions, Will? Yeah, we don't we don't have much time left. But um, I was wondering, are there any uh, considering your work on happiness and um, and uh, wealth, and is there any public policy uh, initiatives you support or or uh, implications from uh, implications from your work? Well, it doesn't come down. To, it doesn't come down to public policy. It comes down to what the individual has in his or her heart. It has to be that true conversion that Rich and I talk about. That's the only way it's going to work. You know, there's a lot of aberrations in our society, and it's not going to be solved by more legislation or another government policy. It's not. It's going to come from an understanding from the individual rebuilding our society. You know, look. One of the things, I mean, there's a lot of ills in America, but there's a lot of greatness for sure. And I think uh, we have this opportunity to get us back on the right track. And I'd like to think that Richer Than a Millionaire is going to be one of those voices that is going to get us on that right track. Well, there's no question, Bill. We're we're fans of it, uh, you know, and uh, you've, you've given so much and uh, – a lot of the stuff is, um, you know, it's it's just it's good medicine because uh, Lord knows we need it, and uh, it's it's kind of a simple thing. <laughs> you don't spend money you don't have to impress people you don't like with money, you know. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, I know we're running out of time, but you know, one of my um, um, pastor friends said this is the kind of advice that I want to give to those who are about to get married. This is the kind of track I want to put them on. And I say amen to that. <laughs> and uh, as long as I can get that kind of advocacy, I think uh, we'll make a real impact here. Well, uh, Bill, let's let's just uh, let's uh, stay in touch. We'll, we'll we'll I'll contact you offline one of these days. But we've come to the end of our show. We're so grateful. Uh, Thank and, you. Yeah. And how can find up more find out more people about you? Uh, what's the website, sure. Bill? For they can the, go to uh, www. Richer than a millionaire, all one word. Richer than a millionaire dot com, and of course the book is on you know Amazon dot com. And and they can also find your profile on your uh, um, uh, Albany. Um, the, you're right, the University at Albany you, website. Even though I'm emeritus, um, the, I still have privileges. Uh, <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, I still get access to the library, which is wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Let's let's we'll keep pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. We, uh, Lord knows, we need more people like you and Bill and Rich and all the work you've done. And God bless you and your family. And just keep going, Bill. We'll be in touch, sir. Right. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. Be God well. Bless. God bless. This has been the Economic Warrior with your host Barry James Dyke, broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio, engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?